This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. I'm here with Dan Kent. We're back for a news and earnings episode. And finally, earnings are, are really kicking in. We even have a, a decent amount of Canadian names as well. So we'll be talking about big tech, uh, Kansas City, uh, well, CPKC, which is Canadian Pacific Kansas City Southern. Same ticker as always, cp.to. A couple other Canadian businesses. Uh, Dan, how are you doing? And uh, any... Any earnings you're most excited to talk about? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, it's not so much on the Canadian end still. Mostly big tech in the U.S. this week. But Meta was definitely interesting. I'll be looking forward to talking about that. The largest gain in history, uh, market cap-wise, in a single day. So it holds both titles, the largest gain and the biggest loss in a single day. It's pretty crazy. But no, overall... Not too many Canadian earnings besides, you know, like a grocer and a couple REITs, but uh, they'll start to come in soon. Yeah, exactly. It'll start coming in. I know we've been saying it for a little bit, but we do have some Canadian <laughs> content here before we get going. So when are your Oilers playing? Is it we're recording this on Tuesday? Is it tonight? They're yeah. going at the record for tonight? the record tonight. Yeah. Against Vegas or is it? Yeah, Vegas, yeah, and okay. then they go against the Ducks to beat it if they. Okay, get so tie it tonight, and then the yeah. next game if they they may they win it. Okay, okay, yeah. so you'll be. It's gonna be you, nervous. You're not me. I'm nervous. Are they in Vegas too? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Okay, and you're not like flying right after the podcast to go and watch? No, a game? no, no, okay. definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get started here. So there's a lot of stuff to get to. We'll start off with kind of some macro here. Not a super detailed uh, review of what the Fed, uh, the U.S. Fed did last week. And to no one's surprise, they said that they were leaving the rate unchanged between, uh, they always have a target, so between 5.25% and 5.5%. I won't do a full recap. Uh, there's tons of good information out there, whether you go on YouTube, other podcasts. But Powell said, that they are prepared to maintain the current monetary policy for longer if it is necessary to get inflation back to target, which is 2%. Now, keep in mind, the Fed has an explicit mandate of maximum employment, whatever that means, and price stability. So it is something that they have to juggle. They said that they will keep looking at data to decide whether or not, they should be easing monetary policy. But clearly, the market got a bit surprised by, you know, the statement. I think the market, well, the market was definitely pricing in a lot of rate cuts this year. They still are, but they're shifting the rate cut probabilities a bit later this year. So we're not seeing any you know, let's say 50% plus chance of a rate cut until the May meeting. The next meeting is in March. And according to the uh, CME Fed Watch tool, it's around 15% for a rate cut and 85% to remain unchanged. And then you're seeing the increases uh, go up pretty substantially as the year goes through. Again, I think it'll be interesting because especially the there's a meeting in September, another one on November 7th. So that is extremely like right in the thick of it for the U.S. election. So it'll be interesting whether they try to get maybe a bit more cuts earlier on before those two meetings to show that they're not, you know, politically biased and try to get like Joe Biden in, for example. But uh, something to keep an eye on. And I'll give a little bit of Canadian flavor here. So what was really interesting is following that meeting, Canadian bond markets really reacted, not only Canadian bond markets, uh, the U.S. as well, but the five-year Canadian bond went from 3.38% to 3.63. Uh, when I did my notes yesterday, it's a bit lower now. I think it's uh, 36 Now, it's the highest level since the end of November of last year. And we'll have to see how bond yields progress and what the impact will have on the Canadian housing market. The reason I'm saying that is because the five-year Canada bond affects the five-year mortgage rate. So banks will typically price the five-year mortgage as a difference. So whether it's, you know, 150, 200 basis point higher than the five-year bond, that's because the way they see it is we can put our money in the Canada five-year bond in the air quote risk-free asset, or we can lend the money out 
for people to buy homes, but that is riskier. So we put a premium on that. So that's why it's always tied to the five years Canada bond. So it'll be interesting where bond yields actually go from here, but it could definitely damper the housing market this spring if they remain elevated because most people tend to gravitate around the five years or three years. So those uh, are always impacted by the bond yields. It definitely doesn't seem to be slowing the housing market in Calgary yet. We had, they (laughs) just report, I just saw this morning, the average single family dwelling in Calgary has gone up 12% year over year. So what's the average there? I think it just hit over 700,000. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which is like, that seems high to me. Like I haven't actually looked in, this was just on like global news or whatever this morning, but yeah, Calgary housing is, is pretty crazy. Anything on our street typically here, I'm just outside of Calgary, but it's scooped up like almost right away. It's pretty crazy. But yeah, the, the rate cuts, it's, I think a lot of people were expecting at least a, a chance of a cut, but he pretty much shut that down like it still could happen but his commentary was pretty against it but i mean even if you look at this meeting this fed watch tool i mean they they predict what is that about a one in three just more than one in three chance that they're sitting at 400 to 425 in december which would be about 100 basis points worth of cuts which would be pretty crazy i think Yeah, exactly. So it would be, they're still pricing in quite a bit. So we can say that there's at least a, you know, they're pricing in a 50%, more than 50% chance that it'll be like, yeah, 125 basis points or lower by the time the year ends. So it'll be really interesting whether that actually comes true or not. So they're still pricing in a lot of rate cuts. I don't know. It's hard to interpret that. Uh, for the joint TCI, you'll see the the Fed watch the odds right now. You know, I find it just really interesting to have a look how the market changes and shifts just based on what is based being said. This, yeah. yeah, exactly. And even, you know, from when I did my notes, I'm looking here. So now the probabilities have gone up for a rate cut in the March meeting literally in a day. So they went from <laughs> 15% now to 20%. Oh, yeah. So it does... Yeah, so it does shift very quickly, so something to keep in mind, but just, I mean, at the end of the day, I know we have our own central bank, but the U.S. is the largest central bank, so the Fed in the world, and clearly our system is, you know, based on U.S. Treasury uh, bonds, and that's the basis of our system. So they're going to have an outsized impact, whatever they do on the rest of the, the world's central banks and economies. So um, just thought it was interesting with the bond yields. Anything else to add, or uh, we uh, shift it up for some earnings here? No, that's about it. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, so I'll start off for a quick one here for earnings, just, you know, some Canadian content before we get into big tech. So Metro, uh, the grocer, reported Q1 2024. Revenues were up 6.5% to just shy of $5 billion. Food same-store sales were up 6.1%. Pharmacy same-store sales were up 3.9%, and they were led by prescription drugs, which increased 6.6%. Over-the-counter sales were actually not very robust with being up only 1.2%. They said that it's in part because last year they had seen a strong cold and flu season and people buying those kind of over-the-counter medicine, which is kind of funny from my own personal perspective. Maybe it's because my daughter started daycare this year, but uh, the flu and cold season (laughs) seems to be hitting me way more this year. But I guess uh, for the general population, it's a bit different. I think you're probably in the same boat as me, huh? So this year, what for for sickness? Yeah, for cold and flu. Yeah, I've had, had a, few a few of them, but yeah. yeah, like more than usual. But yeah, okay. Yeah, it's been there's been a lot more people <laughs> around me that are are were, got very sick. I mean, my wife was sick two or three times, and somehow I avoided it completely. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm not an expert when it comes to that stuff, but I always get fascinated, and obviously. All the different colds, like they're all, there's so many different viruses that will cause colds. And depending on which virus it is, I've noticed sometimes same thing. I'll get it worse than my wife or vice versa. So I'll barely have anything and she'll be sick for like a week. And it's just interesting how different immune systems react yeah, differently you just fight to it various off. viruses. That's it. Yeah. And now to get back to Metro, their food basket inflation was 4%, which they claim was lower than reported CPI. I mean, 
if it is true that it was 4% was clearly lower because yeah. CPI for food was 5.6% in October, obvious on year year over year basis here, 5% in November and 5% again in December. Although I would probably take the 4% claim with just a grain of salt because clearly um, they're in PR mode. The grocers have been under fire by the government, high food prices. You know, they've been now there's like what the grocer code of conduct, the whole thing behind that. So I I don't know. I, I mean, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but I would take that with a grain of salt here. Net income was down 1.1%, $229 They mentioned that an interesting thing is the labor conflict at 27 metro stores in the GTA had a negative impact of $27 So I guess it's uh, $1 per store. But just goes... Excuse me, it just goes to show that uh, it did have a bit of an impact here. Uh, they generated $85 million in free cash flow, which was a 27% decline from last year. Free cash flow can be highly variable on a quarterly basis, so definitely, again, take this with a grain of salt. I love this metric, but it's more useful when you use it on a longer time frame. And they also announced a dividend increase of 10.7%. Yeah, it was... I mean, if you look to store like same store sales like when we look to food they were pretty much flat when you account for inflation unless they unless they do net of inflation on these same store sales but i highly doubt they do like i don't think they do yeah yeah food prices going up five or six percent you know same store sales 6.1 percent so i mean we don't really have any metro i don't even think we have any metro stores in western canada so i don't know if they have like a like a discount line or, you know, if they're a pricier option, but... Yeah, they do. So metros, they're like kind of more, I would say like pricier option, I would say. They do have... Let me check. I think food basics. Is that what Metro? Yeah, is? I think it could be. I think it is food basic, and I'm pretty sure it's super C on the Quebec on the Quebec side. So I'm just checking here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Sparcy and Food Basics are owned by Metro. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I think a lot of you know grocers with like discount you know discount stores are are doing a little bit better now. You see like you see it with Loblaws a lot. Like they have a lot of discount lines, like No Frills, uh, Superstore, things like that. Whereas you know a company like Empire, who's pretty much just Sobeys and uh, God, what other one do they operate? Safeway maybe. Which are just I think ridiculously... they have. Don't they have uh, Farm Boy too? I don't know if you have that. And uh... no, I think we we have Sobeys yeah. and Safeway. And I know Empire's making a pretty strong effort to convert a lot of those uh, Sobe stores to. It was one particular sort of discount uh, store they have, but I mean prices are prices are pretty expensive right now. So I think people are going to be looking to shop discounted. And yeah, in terms of the free cash flow, like especially with a grocer, like that can fluctuate so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just based on, you know, expenditures they might have on the quarter. So over an annual basis is probably like a better picture. And, you know, if you if even spanning that out to, to longer, but it's going to be interesting. I find the grocers are best to just compare the three of them together. Like you look at yeah. Metro, Empire, Loblaws, that's going to give you a really good idea of uh, just the overall situation. No, yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you there. Now, I think that's enough for Metro. We do have a full slate here, so we'll move on to the first of the big tech earnings. So Meta, so what happened with them? Uh, it must have been good because uh, yeah. their stock jumped, what, like 25%? I think they closed 20% up. So they posted really strong earnings, so they beat street estimates on pretty much all fronts. Earnings per share were uh, high, about 10% higher than expected. They gained a total of $197 billion in market cap when the earnings were posted and when, the, when it closed. It closed $197 billion up, which is the largest gain in history. Prior to this, it was $190 billion in gains by Amazon and Apple in 2022. So again, as I mentioned at the start, interestingly enough, Meta also holds the single largest market cap loss in a single day when it reported uh, earnings in February 2022. It lost $232 billion in market cap. I'm pretty sure this was back when Facebook was struggling. Uh, They had negative user growth 
And in addition to this, I think is that's when they were burning like a ton of money in their uh, metaverse reality labs type thing, which I think, you know, a lot of investors kind of thought was just going to be a constant cash burn, which up to this point, it kind of has been. So their metaverse VR, they call it reality labs. Revenue isn't really performing all that well. So it increased by 4x from 2020 to 2022, but this last year it reported a 12.2% decline in revenue to close out 2023. I'm still fairly interested in this element of meta. I've played around with her little um, VR game. It's pretty cool. We used to go like out to uh, like actual physical stores to do that. They had like little VR stores you could play the games Mm. on, but... Now you can pretty much own it right in your house, just on a headset, which is pretty crazy. I think back when we used to go, you needed a pretty high-powered computer to run the thing. But for right now, I think those VR machines are pretty pretty tough sell for those who are cutting back on spending, which is probably a lot of people right now. Ad revenue was strong, so they closed out the year with 16.1% growth, and total active users were up 3.4% to sit at 3.065 billion. There's 8 billion people approximately on earth so that's that's pretty high from a company standpoint like year over year it grew revenue by 16 percent operating income by 62 percent and earnings per share by 73 percent operating margins increased by 10 percent so it went from 25 percent to 35 percent and its total headcount i don't know if you know this off the top of your head it would be this would be the employees is 67000 so this is 22% lower than last year and i i think this would have to be the largest decline out of big tech like i don't know if any of these other companies have laid off 22% of their staff yeah i think you might be right i'll look i know there's this a uh, really good website that is like a tracker i don't know if you've heard about it before it's like layoffs dot uh, fy oh no yeah yeah it's really good so it gives you it's for tech layoffs so it would include meta i'm looking at uh i think they've yeah it's a bit like i know google's sure probably yeah google i think is down like maybe high single digits staff wise but but I know they're yeah, not I th- down 22%. That's uh, that's pretty drastic. Mm-hmm. No, I think they're probably up there because it just uh, it gives when the date of the layoffs happen. And based on Meta, there was a couple of big layoff of 10,000 plus uh, yeah. layoffs. So I think that's the biggest one. Amazon also is pretty close, but not as uh, in just absolute number. I don't think uh, they're they're anywhere near Meta in terms of total kind of employee count or as a percentage yeah yeah this is definitely like i mean when you're growing revenue and you're cutting 22 percent of your of your employees you're you're gonna notice an instant boost in results pretty much the big news among dividend investors however meta is now going to pay a 50 cent quarterly dividend so two dollars a year as of right now it's about a 0.43 percent yield and if we look to a trailing 12-month basis, like based on their previous year's earnings, it would be around a 13% payout ratio. If it can hit 2024 expectations of $20 a share in earnings, it drops to just 10%. So, I mean, this is a really low low dividend. I mean, it's the initial issuance of a dividend, so I wouldn't be surprised to see Meta you know, become a pretty consistent dividend growth stock just because of the... Uh, the room they have there but i'm not exactly sure the strategy on this i like why they would feel it necessary to issue a dividend but i don't know your thoughts on that it seems kind of it seems kind of odd yeah i mean it's a good way for large shareholders to get some money (laughs) out of the company without uh, having to sell shares so i think that's probably has a little something to do with it i mean i'm just guessing here yeah it's yeah Maybe they're trying to, they know their business is kind of, you know, there's like maturity to it, even though it's still growing. Maybe they kind of figure out there is a good base of free cash flow and profits that will, you know, there's a kind there's a floor that they're comfortable with, with paying a dividend and kind of basing on that. That would probably be my, my best assumption. Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh. A lot of dividend investors are probably happy because another big tech. I think it's just, what do they have? Microsoft, Apple, Meta now. Amazon and Google don't quite yet. I don't see them paying one in the near future. But 
Overall, it maintained most of its guidance. Uh, it made some commentary on how Reality Labs is going to continue to incur operating losses, and they they actually said that they're going to increase meaningfully year over year. And I think I can't remember the actual operating losses. I believe they were like sixteen. I can't even remember sixteen billion or sixteen million or something like that. But they uh, th- this segment of the business is kind of burning quite a bit of cash, and they said that. Capital expenditures were going to come in $2 billion higher than originally expected. I think they boosted it from $35 billion to $37 billion. So, I mean, it was it was definitely a good quarter, but it's a bit puzzling to me how it gained 20% on earnings day. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a quarter that would warrant a 20% gain. A gain for sure, but 20% was just pretty crazy to me. I mean... Personally, from my personal standpoint, I've never I've never owned Meta just like just from a moral perspective. Like the business just has always kind of turned me off, especially uh, with that whistleblower situation in 2021, where they pretty much revealed that Meta knew how harmful its platform was to like teenagers and misinformation yeah. and hate speech and all that. So it's never really been something I've ever wanted to own and would never own despite how cheap it did get in 2022 it was pretty crazy um i don't judge anybody who owns it but it's just not something that no that i would ever own personally yeah that's a good point and he was i think in front of congress last week and he actually apologized to families that uh there was arm cause because of you know teenagers being yeah. on on meta so you actually turn around so i'll give him that that you know a lot of the times i mean we see we've seen it with i think uh galen what the blah yeah blah guy yeah yeah galen watson or no the I don't know why. <laughs> Just, yeah, the name escaped me, but everyone knows uh, the least charismatic person in the world, uh, at least in Canada. And when he was asked, like in Weston. person, I think to Weston, Weston yeah, to apologize. Yeah. I think there was something about like higher food prices, or yeah. he was given a story, and he just like did not want to even entertain <laughs> yeah. that. I'm trying to remember. I may be a little bit off, but it was kind of telling. And but yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, too, there's probably a good societal discussion to have. Like maybe, maybe there needs to be an age restriction for kids to be able to go on those platforms i don't know how you'd enforce that maybe it's, yeah, it's difficult maybe it's 15 16 uh, maybe 16 years old i don't know i obviously they're a pretty addictive platform so it's something maybe you know as a society and you know working with those companies that do own those platforms to uh, put some kind of safeguard uh, behind it but it won't be perfect because kids are smart these days and they'll probably find oh, a way yeah. to go around it yeah We'll move on to something again. I guess I'm the uh, Canadian uh, portion yeah. of the podcast today. So, so I like property read. I always have a couple people reaching out to me when earnings come out because uh, they know I own it. Most of the time, they're people that own it as well. So the full year results here don't matter as much. So I'll I'll look a bit more at the quarterly. I'll be comparing some numbers on a sequential basis. So Q3 versus Q4, uh, and some I'll look the year over year. I'm trying to give as much context as I can. I do own it, full disclosure, but at the same time, I think there's some positive. There are some things that weren't as good, and I want to be give the most objective kind of review here of their earnings as I can. There's been a lot of change in the office space as a whole in the past year, so I think providing as much context is really important. The stock was down close to 10% when the earnings release came out, and I think I'll just give my big thoughts of what I think really happened and why investors sold off. So once, uh, well, first of all, once a potential client has interest in a property, they said that it takes them about 12 to 18 months to close that deal, whereas it was three to nine months pre-pandemic. Now, a big concern here is not the return to the office. They seem to be saying the main concern is just the kind of uncertain macroeconomic environment. So clients are extra careful to commit to new space. And for extra context, there is 1.1 million square foot that is generating interest from clients. About 60, 60%, so six zero of that is currently under negotiation with the rest of 40% just being about like more, you know, gauging and seeing if, uh, 
you know, clients are kind of just doing their initial due diligence. They still believe that they will be back to 94, 95% occupancy. Right now, they're in the high 80s, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But it may take longer than initially thought, and they did not provide a time frame on that. So I think people were expecting, I think in the past, they were saying probably by the end of 2025. So I think the market didn't love that there was a bit of uncertainty there. They expect the first half to be slower for leasing activity, but to pick back up in the back half of 2024. And overall, their outlook for 2024 is flat to slightly down on most of their important metrics like funds from operation or adjusted funds from operation. And I'll talk about these a bit more as well. They also wrote down $772 million for the year on the value of their investment. Now, most of it being last quarter. So this is essentially just a- adjusting the value of their assets downwards. And I think that was another reason that the market probably didn't love uh, to see. Now, on to the results, FFO and AFFO increased 2.7% and 3.1% respectively versus Q3. FFO is calculated by adding back depreciation, amortization, and losses on sales of assets to their net income and then subtracting any gains on sales of assets and interest income. Now, AFFO is similar but takes into account maintenance costs and also straight lines rent, which is the average rent for the life of the contract. Leased area and occupied areas were down 30 basis point and 40 basis point respectfully, uh, respectively. Now, leased area is at 87.3%. Occupied area is at 86.4%. They are well above uh, market occupancy based on CBRE figures in all markets except Vancouver. However, Vancouver is one of their smallest markets. Their two largest markets are Montreal and Toronto. It represents 78% of their total leasable area. And the rest is divided between, in order, Calgary, Vancouver, Kitchener, Ottawa. Now, the interest coverage ratio improved from 2.5% to 2.9% versus Q3. And it's actually back at the level that it was about a year ago. That's because they used some of the proceeds that they got from the sale of the Urban Data Center portfolio to pay down debt. And the average in-place rent per occupied square foot, which is a very you know, an important metric to focus on for a company like this was up 4.3% year over year and up 1.3% versus Q3. Overall, I mean, they are faring very well when comparing to the CBRE office uh, real estate report. Mm -hmm. And that report comes out every quarter. So the vacancy rate, if you compare for downtown Class A, because uh, you have allied property reads that are Class A office building, Class A just means these are building with nice, like really, you know, they tend to be older buildings for allied, but these are buildings they renovated. There's all these amenities they are really nice spaces to go work. And that's what the data has been showing, as people can see in the joint TCI, is the Class B buildings, especially the downtown Class B. So the ones that are kind of older building, the kind of classic cubicles, they, they might be fine to work in. But as you're trying to encourage people to come back to the office, um, they become a much harder or sell whereas you know downtown class a and then you have suburban class a and suburban class b those have all performed much better than the downtown class b and for the suburban i would assume it's because it's probably closer to where people live in general so even the class b is performing better there and the vacancy rate is 17 percent here for class a downtown and allied is around the 13 12 13 percent mark so clearly they are doing much better than the market and the last thing i wanted to chat about and dan i'll be interesting to hear what you have to say on the whole allied situation but the national office inventory under construction is at its lowest level since 2017. And I think this is a key part, at least for my investment premise into Allied, is that people are forgetting that. I think they're solely focused on the fact that it's just not the same as before that you essentially have less demand for the office real estate, which is completely true. There's less demand. Most companies are doing two to three days in person in the office. But if you continue seeing less and less new building comes on, come online, then properties like Allied 
has become more and more attractive because you have less of these newer amenity rich buildings that are coming online and then you start to have to use what is currently available and i think that will kind of provide a little bit of tailwind for companies like allied so it'll be interesting to keep an eye on i mean from my perspective i'm still happy with my investment i clearly i've said it from the beginning there's uh a lot of uncertainty ahead in this space. So it's an investment you should make fully knowing that. There is some probabilities it goes sideways and it doesn't pan out like I think it will a few years down the line. Just, you know, you have to be aware of these kind of risks. Yeah, yeah it's definitely like, I think it's like cheap enough that it's kind of like, I wouldn't say a high risk, high reward play, but it's definitely like a contrarian play right now because office REITs are, are not popular at all. The interesting thing I found is on this this chart, uh, the class A, class B is like the big increase in class B was post pandemic. So I kind of wondered, like you, the downtown class A properties are are going to be worth more on a rental basis. So I'm wondering if this was you know smaller companies that you know just couldn't afford it after the pandemic, or you know because it's steadily increased while. Uh, the class A's kind of been maintained at a, at a pretty low occupancy ratio relative to that. So, I mean, it's a huge difference in class A and class B, like occupancy wise, you're talking like seven, 8%. Yeah. So that's, yeah, a, exactly. That's a meaningful difference. Yeah, and just to put some context here, because not everyone's seeing the chart, is that, you know, you had like in 2019 and just before the start of the pandemic, Class B office real estate, so downtown, was around, I would say, kind of ballpark, like 12% vacancy rate, and it's jumped to 24%, where you had office that was around, you know, 7.5%, and that's jumped to 17%. So it's still increased a decent amount, but it's still... The let's just say the sharpness of the increase yeah, of the, the vacancy gap is rate widening. is not. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I feel like it's just uh, probably a symptom from, uh, you know, working from home and then the return yeah. to office. And I think companies are probably just deciding, look, if we want to encourage people to come in, we just have to make sure we get some attractive real estate and make it worth their while to come to the office. So I have a, I have a suspicion that a lot of the leases that, you know, expired from class B are either going not renewed and, you know, businesses are just getting rid of office space altogether, or they are shifting to class A real estate, or maybe even suburban class A and class B if a yeah. significant portion of their employees actually live in uh, suburban areas. Yeah, it's going to be interesting moving forward to see how, like, I think they're doing quite well, all things considered, like they're, uh, their payout ratios are in, you know, I think from an adjusted basis, they're in like the 80% range, I believe, which isn't yeah. all yeah, that for bad the, for uh, REIT. Yeah, for the AFFO, which includes, uh, I think it's a better metric because uh, yeah. it's uh, it's more, uh, har- it's harsher for the company yeah. than FFO. So their payout ratio, I think it's in the low 80s. And that's quite good for a, a, a REIT. Uh, Pretty uh, typical an office for a REIT, yeah. Especially like yeah. how hard it's getting hit. Like I think... I think what was it just this quarter they had to write down they had to adjust five hundred million dollars worth of property. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was seven hundred something for the year. So yeah. I used a number for the year, but that's why I mentioned most of it was this quarter. And I mean, I just think look, I mean, if you're surprised by the adjustment, like where have you been living is probably the first thing. Yeah. Because there's been it's not like there's like a slew of office real estate transaction happening, right? There's a lot of private equity in there, private real estate, and they tend to not, uh, you know, there's not a lot of transactions. So it's not the easiest thing to be able to put a price yeah. on. So to me, that was always something that was highly likely to happen. And for investors that were surprised by that, I mean, they probably were living under a rock. Like, I don't know, like you clearly... I've not been paying attention what's been happening in this space. If you thought that there wasn't at least a decent potential of the uh, the asset value to be written down a little bit. Yeah, and that's the one uh, dangerous thing. I guess a lot of people look at REITs as, as a premium or discount to their NAV, which, yeah, I mean, some of these, some of these REITs, especially the ones that, um, what were those office REITs? I know there was TNT. There's HR REIT or in the US or Canada? No, just those two big office REITs well, not big ones, but they ended up cutting their distributions, but they were trading at huge discounts to NAV. But it, it was pretty clear that, you know, 
they were not as discounted as it looked individually. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a pretty rough space right now, but Allied seems to be, uh, seems to be doing yeah. pretty well. And this is a company so, yeah, that we talk about quite a bit. Yeah, it's yielding 10%. And the last thing is I'll say is their their debt metrics look quite good. Yeah. They do have some debt maturing mostly, I believe, in 2025, if I remember correctly. But they're well managed. They're doing all the right things. I think it's just the market being really bearish on this space. Of course, again, I own this. It's not without its risks, so it definitely could go sideways as an investment. I still like it. I mean, it's a small position of my portfolio, and I think that's uh, something for people to just remind themselves if you're taking maybe a riskier position you can always allocate accordingly to mitigate the risk but i think that's enough for allied we'll move on to uh big tech uh, number two here yeah. with amazon's earnings yeah so they reported pretty solid earnings they topped expectations on all fronts and um just of note like the the year that amazon has had so they Amazon has beat Wall Street expectations by pretty significant amounts for pretty a straight year now. So in the first quarter of 2023, earnings came in 50% higher. In Q2, they were they were almost double. In Q3, they were 63% higher. And in this fourth quarter, they were 25% higher. So clearly the company is just smashing expectations. And I mean, I, I believe in 2023, it was up something like 83, 80 something percent maybe. Operating margins have witnessed a significant recovery. They're now back to historical averages, hovering just around there, trending even slightly above. So margins were hit pretty hard in 2022. So they fell operating margins. They fell from 6.6% to 2.3. So this ended up uh, hitting the company pretty hard. But at the end, as of the end of 2023, they now sit at 6.41%. And the company reported fiscal 2023 free cash flows of 32.2 billion. So if we look to this on a year over year basis, the company went from an outflow of nearly 20 billion to an inflow of 32 billion. So this is a more than $50 billion swing in free cash flow. And although the company's retail segment still continues to generate, you know, high single digit growth, one of the main drivers for the revenue growth and particularly margin expansion has been the growth in its ad services segment and its Amazon web services segment. So advertising services revenue saw a 27% year over year increase while Amazon web services grew by 13%. And in addition to this, it's third party services, which is it's pretty much they just act as kind of a middleman, I guess, to get sellers to sell their products yeah, on like their network. Yeah, like a fulfillment, yeah, yeah. fulfillment provider, I think. And they right? pretty much yeah. just take a cut of the sales. So that grew by 20%. This is a, typically a more cyclical segment of the business. So during the pandemic, it grew quite a bit, probably because of a lot of third-party sellers on the platform, and then it kind of cooled down. And now it is growing yet again. AWS operating margins that came in at 29.6%, which is 5.3% higher than the fourth quarter of 2022. And on Black Friday, they sold, Amazon stated, they never really released like hard dollar numbers, but they said that they sold more than 1 billion items. So more than 1 billion items were purchased on Black Friday with the United States accounting for about half of this. They said this was their highest volume holiday season ever. On a quarter over quarter basis, net sales of 170 billion was a 14% increase from last year and both operating income and net income saw pretty big jumps as well. They grew sales by 12% on a year over year basis when we compare 2023 to 2022. Operating income tripled and net income grew by more than tenfold. I really like what Amazon is doing. I have a, I have a a core position in Amazon. I mean, like during the pandemic, they were investing a ton of money into infrastructure. I mean, I think they were spending something silly like $50, $60 billion a year just on expanding their fulfillment network, which I mean, right now it's looking like it's going to pay off. So the retail business is able to grow. And while under the surface, like it's ad network and, and Amazon web services are are continuing to, you know, drive strong double digit growth. I mean, it's, the company still does generate a ton of money from retail, but it's it's also expanding to uh, much more than a retail company overall. 
Yeah, I have uh, here. I pulled up the uh, capex, uh, the capital expenditure by year, and you see, yeah, yeah like uh, 2021, 2022, it really ramped up, even 2020, and then it's kind of slowing down now a little bit for last year. I mean, it's still some massive numbers here, so you still have, uh, you know, 52 uh, billion in capex for last year, but you know, it's it's slowing down. It's smaller than their 63 uh, billion a year before and 61 the year before that. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to argue, like, like ordering on Amazon. I mean, I know some people, uh, we can't get it here, but I know some people get same-day delivery. Like, if you order before, you know, 10 a.m. or whatever, they can have it to your door by, you know, in the next four or five hours, which is, I don't think there's another retailer that could that can match that, especially in terms of convenience, like right to your door in that amount of time. They're definitely, they're definitely a people-first convenience company, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're an employee first company. No, definitely not. <laughs> convenience <laughs> first. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, I've always, uh, I had Amazon and I just decided last year to get rid of all my big tech and just put that money into the um I taught, which is very similar to the S&P yeah. 500. So market cap weighted for those large big tech. I just figured, you know what? just easier and i also get additional exposure to those uh, other smaller companies clearly there's going to be a bit less upside but that's fine uh not have to stay on top of those companies as often but uh, i did think i owned it i bought it in 2022 because they had the big big pullback and everyone was bearish on amazon it just seemed like it was short-sighted and I think right now we're seeing that it was probably short-sighted when they were sent, like saying that they had overbuilt some fulfillment centers and yeah. then they were leasing them out and stuff like that. So I think it was kind of peak bearishness for Amazon. Yeah, I think they lost. They were definitely hit the hardest out of all of the Magnificent Seven. I'm pretty sure. Like they lost, maybe not Tesla, but I think they might have even lost more than Tesla in 2022. I think they were down 60-some percent. It was a pretty rough year for Amazon. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but we'll uh, we'll continue here because we yeah. still have two companies to go over. I think we'll be good. Now, Canadian Pacific, so CPKC, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Southern, Q4 and the full year. I'll mostly look at the full year revenues here, not just because we don't do it that often. So I think it'll be useful for people. So for the year, revenues were up 43% to $12.6 billion now. I think it's important to keep in mind that the Kansas City Southern acquisition closed in April of 2023. And the result look fantastic here but again you're comparing against 2022 where um, that business was not part of cp so i think we have to take this with a grain of salt but nonetheless i think it was a, a pretty good year for um canadian pacific i'll just say canadian pacific i just find like yeah, it's, it's too long to say it's very hard say the whole thing yeah operating ratio was up 280 basis point to 65 percent for the year is definitely on the high side uh they do have an adjusted one but i i prefer using the operating ratio i suspect that you'll see it uh, coming down next year i think that's probably in the low 60s i would that would be my best guess earnings per share was up 12 percent to four point four dollars 21 free cash flow was down 25 percent to 2 billion revenue Newton mile was up 27%. Average train length was down 7%. And for guidance in 2024, they expect EPS to grow in the double digits while they expect to spend $2.75 billion on capital expenditures. Keith Creel, who is the CEO, is very excited in 2024 with what CPK or what the, you know what the year has in store for Canadian Pacific. Most of the segments did well, although there were two soft spots, so grain crop shipments and intermodal. Uh, grain crop shipments was just an area of weakness. They said that farmers were holding on to more of it. I think there was some price weakness there. And intermodal. Uh, it was still up 10% for the year, but it sounds like it was down if you take out the effects of the acquisition, just based on what they mentioned on their conference call. Intermodal, for those not familiar with it, it just means moving freight by two or more forms of transportation. So, for example, by rail and then trucks. So, by using intermodal containers, you can actually move the freight very quickly between rail and trucks. So, it's just a, a more efficient ways of doing things if you're using more than 
one form of transportation. On the call, they said that 2024 would be a strong year for them, but they did mention that there's still some macroeconomic uncertainty. The dividend remained the same. I didn't catch any comments about the future, about future increases on the call, but based on their investor day in 2023, they're definitely focusing on getting debt down. And on the call, they seem to be more focused to do buybacks in the next years as they they find you know the stock attractive or not versus raising the the dividend yeah it's pretty interesting like there it seems like cn rail and cp are like two they kind of seem like two separate businesses right now in the way that like cn rail is you know they've raised a dividend for what 25 27 years whereas uh cp is like they're pretty much i don't expect them to raise that in the near future they're going to lose their so with canadian dividend aristocrat you actually get two years so if you don't raise, okay. if you don't raise it in one year they give you it's very very lenient you can miss a year maintain the dividend and then if you raise it the next year you keep your your status but this will be the second year that that cp rail hasn't raised the dividend so i would imagine they'll be removed from like all those aristocrat indexes like this year at some time when they when they do the rebalancing but the double digit earnings growth is is interesting too because with CP Rail they kind of they were very transparent on how many shares they plan to rebuy which was like I think it was supposed to account for you know almost half of that earnings growth whereas I don't think CP came out and outright stated you know how many buybacks they plan so I wonder how much of this is growth through actual earnings growth and how much is through uh through buybacks but it's definitely going to be interesting for the rails yeah based on one of the uh, questions they had it seems like it'll be kind of a a mix of both i think probably coming because they have like a five-year plan something like that i think the buybacks will probably be uh, increasing in you know subsequent years probably not that many buybacks this year but i think that's a smart move yeah you want to get the debt under control uh lower that to more appropriate levels and then you know focus on the integration that there's some costs related to that when you make such a big acquisition you know efficiencies that they can kind of get through the acquisition as well probably less than they expect they always think that there's going to be more oh than way they, more yeah you know companies they always think efficiencies with the acquisition but nonetheless i think that's a good thing to focus and then when things are a bit more stable and you're really just focusing on growth and your new operations are really well in place then you can look at you know buying back more stock or raising the dividend i think that's a good approach i mean i'm debating personally just making equal weighted cnr and cp yeah just because i think they both have such such wide rail networks and it's such a concentrated uh, market as well there's not that many players they have very strong moats i think you'll get more growth with cp but probably obviously they'll get more capital returns to shareholders i wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the day five years from now the total returns are quite similar for both companies though they would just be achieved in a different way yeah they've kind of like over the years they've kind of traded off i mean i know cp rail struggled a lot not too long ago and and cn was was the better performer where i think as recently cps really uh picked things up and outperformed i guess the last thing i would say about this is in terms of the revenue the operating results like adjusted so if you actually adjust the the acquisition numbers out they grew revenue by four percent and earnings by four percent so it wasn't a bad year all things considered but those acquisition numbers definitely like bloat the figures for sure but yeah, and the last thing I'll finish on. So for joint TCI listeners, and I'll, I'll mention the uh, percentages here. So I mean, they're almost in completely lockstep for the last ten years for yeah. returns. Not quite. So CP has outperformed slightly, two hundred seventy-four percent in terms of total returns, and Canadian National Rail two hundred and forty-two percent. This is probably close to the index, I would think. I'm kind of curious here. It might even be more yeah it's more yeah so they are outperforming the index a little bit so you know there's something to say with these like boring 
kind of you know businesses that just chug along and have these uh really you know sustainable modes i mean they tend they they might not be the sexy, sexiest businesses but uh if you just hold on to them for very long periods of time you'll you'll do pretty well so yeah no overall i mean that's kind of my takeaway anything else to add or you'll finish with uh big tech here no i guess the only thing i would say is yeah they have the, the rails have a ton of pricing power just because I mean, when when you just think of it, the railways, I mean, it's very hard to enter the industry and they just have incredible moats. So again, pricing power leads to earnings growth, which I didn't think they would have outperformed the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. That's pretty impressive, but... Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. That's why I mean I like those businesses, yeah. even though they don't pay a big dividend. Um, it's just the mode, and I mean the total returns are just fantastic. So, uh, yeah, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll just equal weight, couple of percentage points yeah. in my portfolio, CNR and CP, and just let them ride. You know, maybe one will perform slightly better than the other. I, I mean, I think you can't go wrong with doing a, a basket approach. And again, to me, it's not too much focus on the Canadian economy. Both of them. They have so much of the railway in the U.S. and then obviously into Mexico for CP. I think you really benefit from North America as a whole. Yeah. So I'm not as concerned for the uh, Canadian exposure as much for them. Yeah. The thing about the the dividend, especially with a company like CN Rail, who's increased it for you know two and a half plus decades, is the only way yield can stay low if they're raising it that much year in year out is share prices going up, right? So they've performed performed very well over the years but yeah i guess we'll we'll move on to google yeah the google machine or yeah. alphabet, alphabet if we're using the right name yeah, yeah, yeah. but everybody <laughs> everybody calls it google yeah. but yeah alphabet strong earnings but they had a very small miss on its expected ad revenue which caused it to actually drop quite a bit i think it, it dropped like anywhere from six to eight percent on earnings day I, I can't remember but I mean, it's not all that surprising because the company was up more than 50% over the last year heading into the quarter. So, I mean, I, I think even like a marginally soft quarter might result in, you know, some people wanting to take profits. Uh, they grew revenue by 10% and increased earnings per share by 27% on a year over year basis. So they seem to be firing on all cylinders and pretty much every single one of its business segments. So they had a pretty stagnant year last year when it comes to YouTube revenue. But it's back to growth, similar growth to their Google search revenue, high single digits. Its cloud segment is growing at a 26% pace. I think a lot of the concerns from an outsider looking in would be the fact that Google is not growing its main you know, bread and butter segment, that being Google search by that much. The small miss on expected revenue in this department is probably what caused it to take a bit of a hit post earnings. So... Google search revenues make up 175 billion of the company's 307 billion in total revenue, and it only grew by 7.7% a year. And I mean, it's pretty funny to say only when we think of just the sheer size of Google's business. So if you think about it, Google's annual revenue is 2.3 times the size of our largest publicly traded company, Royal Bank. And even when you look on the ad side of things, so it made 175 billion in ad revenue, that's more than the size of Royal Bank, just its ad revenue. So the fact it can grow at a double digit pace is is pretty amazing. But I think the main issue right now, I think with Google is a lot of investors look at Microsoft who is growing its cloud business at a similar pace, but it makes up a much larger chunk of overall revenue. So I think people, you know, they may think that Microsoft is is a much stronger opportunity. But on that front, I would say that just from a valuation perspective, Microsoft is trading at 45 times its cash flows, trailing cash flows, and 31 times its expected earnings, while Google is trading at 27 times trailing cash flows and around 18.5 times expected earnings. So this is kind of an interesting, interesting element here where... You know, you have two similar companies. One's much, much cheaper, but growing at, you know, a bit of a slower pace. It's very likely the company's cloud segment becomes the second largest revenue generating segment next quarter. So its cloud segment fell behind YouTube revenue by only around a hundred million last quarter. And just at the pace it's growing right now, it's it's definitely gonna probably succeed that next quarter. There's not much else to say. It continues to dominate search, but it's the slowest growing segment of the business while making up a huge chunk 
of its revenue. So it will have to ramp up its cloud-based growth to to impress investors, especially when you see a company like Microsoft doing the things that it's doing. And I guess another comment on the state of ad revenue, and this is a bit anecdotal, but we do deal with some pretty large ad networks at stock trades. Although our ad revenue is much higher than they were in January, 2023, you couldn't get much lower in 2023. It was absolute rock bottom. They're still lower than they were pre-pandemic, suggesting, you know, if there's some improvement in economic activity, we could see ad revenue growth in terms of, you know, say an RPM, like a cost per thousand views increase, which ultimately would benefit Google because they can charge more uh, to advertisers who want to advertise because they're they're mostly competitive rates. You know, they'll Google will charge whatever, you know, the demand is for particular keywords, things like that on its search network. So Generally, the more activity you get there, the more that it is going to be able to grow its uh, search revenue overall. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right too. For uh, yeah, Google seems to be trading a little bit uh, at a cheaper value. Well, yeah, definitely a cheaper yeah. valuation than a Microsoft. I think there's probably still the fear of you know Google search being replaced by AI. I don't know. I feel like. I'm still using Google as much as I used to. I, I, I use ChatGPT, but oftentimes it's more as a kind of an assistant for like writing, summarizing yeah, exactly. stuff and things like that. I find it's really useful for that. But um, even if you do the pay version, I think it's never like super up to date. It's always a bit behind on actual data. So yeah. that's why I, I still go to Google. But yeah, it's a it's a good point. I mean, the ad business is always something uh, that kind of ebbs and flows. And to to get back to the valuation, I think it's a good reminder, especially for people who are new to investing, especially Microsoft. Microsoft is priced to perfection. Yeah, like I I know Satya Nadella has been doing a fantastic job. I think it's been he's been 15, 10 years now as CEO. I think it you just celebrated so, that or something. Yeah. So he's done a great job, but, you know, there's a law of big numbers and there's a high valuation and these there's high expectations for Microsoft, especially when it comes also with kind of anything related to AI, but the cloud, as you said it, if they don't meet those high expectations, when you have such a high valuation, I mean, we saw what happened in 2021, obviously, sorry, in 2022, following 2021, obviously, there were interest rates, you know, pressures as well. It wasn't the free money environment like we had seen. But I think it's, it's something to keep in mind for people that, you know, see these companies as blue chip and very little downside. I mean, they are priced to perfection. So if anything does go wrong, like you we saw with Google, you can get some pretty significant downward pressure. Yeah, that's pretty interesting as well because I think in 2023, I think Google was one of the best performing tech, like outside of Amazon, I believe. I think it did pretty well and it's still, like valuation isn't everything, obviously. I mean, Google could struggle and Microsoft could keep crushing it, which yeah. could oh, yeah. easily justify this. So like it doesn't make google the the automatic buy over microsoft obviously just because it's cheaper but like it is much much cheaper which is i mean on a on an earnings basis it's almost half the price on an expected yeah. earnings basis so like you got to kind of take all of this in and consider all of it but uh, i just felt that you know i would note the valuation just because of how wide how wide it is like how much more expensive microsoft is than google and i think it is because of that cloud aspect of things, whereas it makes up a huge chunk of Microsoft's business growing at a similar pace. Whereas with Google, it's it's not very much in the overall grand scheme of things. It's mostly the the ad base. And I think people maybe find that ad base less attractive. I guess it's, you know, it's going to be cyclical as well. But I mean, I like Google. It's the one I've been adding. I, I've been adding Google like out of the big uh, US techs. I've been adding Google the most aggressively over the last uh, five, six months here. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, yeah. And my point was more like the higher the multiples, the higher the valuation, the less of a margin the company exactly, has yeah. if they under deliver a little bit versus expectation. I think that's just important for people to just to remind themselves. I mean, Microsoft could double from here. Like I'm oh, not, yeah. you know, I can't see in the future. Maybe things get even frothier or, you know, it, 
revenues accelerate who knows but i'm just mentioning that when things are not they're that expensive and you don't i mean they could do very well but yet just miss like overall in expectations and see a big drop in their share price yeah. and i think that's just uh that's just a reminder there but i yeah overall i think that was a good episode finally earnings is kicking in anything you want to add before uh before we sign off then no, that's it. Thanks for li- listening, everybody. We'll see you next week. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you haven't done so, we really appreciate if you can uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating on Spotify. And obviously, if you want to see our portfolios and videos, they're available on Joint TCI. And uh, Dan and I are both on Twitter. You can look in the description for our Twitter handles. And obviously, Dan runs the uh, stocktrades.ca side. So I think that kind of covered everything. Uh, thanks for listening. And we'll be back uh, next Thursday with another Earnings and News episode. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.